Welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions, episode 12. Today's topic, Who Done It? Welcome to another session of Hotel Bar Podcast. I'm Ammon Allred. I'm joined here by my two co-hosts. I'm Shannon Mussett. Hey, and I'm Lee Johnson. Good to see you guys. Good to see you too, Ammon. We're trying to recreate here the effect of and the fun and the camaraderie and interesting conversations of when we get together at the end of a really fascinating day of conferences for the real conference when we talk together at the hotel bar after the fact. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask both of you guys, what session did you just get out of and what are you drinking today? Shannon, you want to go first? Sure thing. I've decided due to the content of today's discussion, I'm going to have a glass of dark red wine. And I just got out of a session. One swallow does not make a summer colon experience over time matters in politics colon this argument only applies to Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know where you're going with that, but you brought it home. <laughs> what about you, Lee? So I also am changing my drink order for today's topic, and I am going to have a dirty vodka martini Ooh. shaken, not stirred. Nice. <laughs> and I love that drink. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> and the paper I got out of was titled The Perils of the Fourth Step Why Philosophers Can't Quit Philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm so glad you laughed because I wasn't sure that everyone would. Okay, so for listeners, the fourth of the AA steps requires a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I just don't think that philosophers can get past that step. <laughs> <laughs> we just get stuck there. I also will order a special drink for today. I'm going to order a Sambuca with three espresso beans on top, which is <laughs> on fire in a second. <laughs> and I just got out of a session entitled, Thus Twote Zarathustra. <laughs> did Nietzsche invent the internet? <laughs> Turns out the answer is no, he did not. But you required an entire paper to convince We needed a whole that. paper to ascertain that actually, no, it's not really a thing in Nietzsche's <laughs> philosophy. And nevertheless, people just keep on talking about Nietzsche on Al Gore's internet. Zarathustra does, he does quote left and right. So that's fair, <laughs> true. True. He might've just invented Twitter. So anyway. what are we going to talk about today, Eamon? I'm glad you've all come here because I think over the next hour, it will be revealed that one of us is a murderer. Dun, dun, dun. We'll Not figure it. out which one. Because today we're going to talk about whodunits. More broadly, we're going to talk about mysteries and detective stories, which I really like a lot. I don't think I'm an aficionado, but I do. I, I like a lot of them. And I've been interested in philosophically for a while. I know, Lee, you have also. Shannon, I think you're a little bit more of a skeptic, but hopefully by the end of today, we'll have persuaded you some i'm definitely open to being persuaded and i will say that doing all the research for today's episode i'm already more open to being persuaded than i was before good good so the reason why i wanted to have this conversation i, I part of why i want to have this conversation which we i is a specific show that i was watching which i couldn't convince you guys to watch just because it's in danish and six hours long <laughs> which, shocking <laughs> shocking <laughs> But I'm still going to talk about it later. But ever since the Marxist philosopher Ernst Bloch wrote a piece called The Philosopher as Detective, I think there's been a lot of interesting discussions of ways in which mystery stories and detective novels and detective movies work 
to try to do something very similar to what philosophers claim that they're trying to do, which is to, on the basis of sometimes faulty evidence and sometimes difficult evidence, use science, reason, intuition, and sometimes good luck to make sense of the world. And I think that aesthetically, the genre allows a lot of really interesting exploration into, the, into that basic set of problems. And I, I think that it would be, I thought it'd be fun to talk with you two about some of the ways that we think that works, some of the ways that we think it doesn't work, and some of the places where we think that maybe more interesting examples of the genre might challenge what we think philosophers are capable of. I'm in. Also in. <laughs> Good. So we actually want to start. You had, you reminded me, I'd forgotten this, but I remember reading it now years and years ago. You had been talking about having watched Christopher Nolan's movie, The Prestige. And it sounds like that might have given you like a flash of insight into what you think philosophers don't do well. And I was hoping if we could start with what you were talking about there. Pick up the conversation from 10 years ago. Yeah, it was about 10 years ago. The Prestige, which is Christopher Nolan's best film, is about two magicians who are basically in a lifelong competition to one-up each other. And the two magicians are played by Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. And it turns out, so this is a spoiler alert, by the way. It turns out that one, Christian Bale's magic trick ends up frustrating and stymieing the imagination of Hugh Jackman because he just can't figure it out. Now, it's important as a setup to note that the word, the prestige, is a name for one part of the three parts of a magic trick. So the magic trick involves the pledge, where you show the audience something ordinary, and then the turn, where you make the ordinary extraordinary. So, for example, you show the audience a bird, and then you make the bird disappear. And then the prestige, which is when you make the bird reappear. And the film is based on this idea that nobody claps at the turn. Nobody wants to just see the bird disappear. We want the bird to reappear, that we only clap at the prestige. Hugh Jackman is trying to figure out the trick of uh, Christian Bale's character. Now, it turns out, and again, as I said, this is a spoiler, that Christian Bale's character in the film actually has a twin. And so he's only capable of doing this trick because he has a twin, which he you know, c- keeps covered up for his whole life. But the idea here is that Hugh Jackman's character remains really confused by whether or not actually what Christian Bale is doing is real magic or whether or not it's a magic trick. And he more or less drives himself mad trying to figure out how the trick is done. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I first saw this film was that it reminded me a lot of philosophy, that this is what we do. We find these things that look like miracles or look like magic, and we want to make sense of them. We need to make sense of them. And so we, so in many ways, that philosophy is the prestige. It's making the extraordinary ordinary again, or at least making it make sense. So that was my 10 years ago theory about the prestige. And when you brought up this topic for our podcast, I think it might actually fit with what I anticipate are your intuitions about what makes mysteries philosophically interesting. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Philosophers are really good at the well actually part. We don't build up what all the elements of the problem are. And I think one thing that's really fascinating about the mystery genre is it does that really well. I think that there's a wager that goes on there that there should be some way to explain it. Yes. And I think that's, it's that character that Hugh Jackman can't get over. 
And of course, in this case, there really is an explanation, as it were. But but I think that's also right. Isn't it just the structure of mysteries is that there's no miracle here. There's no magic here. There's something to be solved. Yeah, that's that seems to be a crucial uh, wager. So I just in line with this, because you mentioned Ernst Bloch, he's got a nice little encapsulation of what you're talking about. And I actually want to use this as a springboard to talk about what exactly is the structure of a mystery, because I think there are a lot of genres that are mysterious and there are a lot of ways of investigating and there's a lot of ways of keeping a reader's attention, but they're not all the genre of mystery. So I want to read this quote and see if you agree with it and then see if we can push it a little bit. So... The quote is, before the first word of the first chapter, something happened, but no one knows what, apparently not even the narrator. A dim focal point exists as yet unrecognized whither and thither the entire truckload of ensuing events is mobilized. A crime, usually a murder, precedes the beginning and all other narrative forms, both deeds and misdeeds develop before the omnipresent reader. Here on the contrary, the reader is absent when the misdeed occurs, a misdeed that though conveniently home delivered, shuns the light of day and lingers in the background of the story. It must be brought to light. And this process itself is the exclusive theme. And that's actually from Colin Harper's article talking about the mystery in Ernst Bloch. So what do you think of that? Do you think that's a good encapsulation of the structure and what it is about it that you find so intriguing? Yeah, I think so. One of the things that I am going to want to talk about because I can't help myself is generic subversions. So ways in which these expectations that are structured get subverted. But I think as a starting point of ways in which these sorts of stories are often structured, that's absolutely right. And it gets at something that I think is really interesting about the genre, something that I think has bled into other genres in a lot of ways, is this refusal of omniscience. The story won't work if, if the reader or the narrator has all the information. And that seems to be crucial so that we're going to be going through in some way, shape or form the process with the investigator, whoever that investigator ends up being. I think that's a really interesting way to say it is this sort of refusal of omniscience. I do think, though, that it is important that both the reader or the viewer and the narrator have common understanding, though, that there is an answer, even if no one knows it yet. From the God's eye view, this story can make sense. Yeah, that's going to be super important. There is a structure. There is a sensibility something did happen and there will be some way. And equally importantly, there are techniques that will correctly reveal what happened. And so interestingly, I think that the philosopher, that's what philosophers claim we do. That's also going to be the way in which the, whoever it is, that's the invest, let's just call this person the detective, even though we're talking about a lot more than detectives, but there's going to be the way in which the detective uncovers this, that is going to, in various ways, generally parallel the way in which the narrator reveals it. So yeah, there's this sort of this ontological and epistemological commitment to the comprehensibility of the crime and to the ability of somebody to explain the crime, both internally and externally to the story. So I don't... We 
don't have to spend time talking about this now, but the reason I read that quote is because I actually want to ask a very specific question, especially given the fact that we're talking not just about the genre of mysteries, but we're talking about philosophy as a kind of mystery. And that is, is there a crime? Does there have to be a crime that initiates both the mystery as a literary genre and more importantly, I guess, for my idea is philosophy as a discipline? Is there always a crime? I don't think that there has to be a crime in the traditional way that we understand a crime, but I do think that the genre itself presumes that the not knowing is a kind of crime. Yeah. 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 That that there is something that hasn't been figured out that could be figured out. That has to be, that's an offense. Not to totally take it too old school, but I, I also am asking because I'm thinking that if you look at Plato's Theaetetus or Aristotle's metaphysics, the whole idea there is that philosophy begins in wonder. And it's yeah. the wonder, what is it? What does he say? Aristotle says, for it is owing to their wonder that human beings now begin at first to philosophize. They wondered first about the obvious difficulties, the difficulties, the fact that there's a yeah. problem, there's something that is unsettling because it's unknown. And so there's a kind of wonder about how to get about to solving and, and curing the unknown. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly, that's the, and I know that it's weird that, I, but I'm going to keep on insisting using this word wager. That's the wager of philosophy too, is that we can, by starting with the simple things, we can progress backwards to the deeper and more profound mysteries and truths. And it, yeah, it's very explicit in Plato and Aristotle. As an aside, one of my favorite classic detective TV shows is Columbo, which I of did you course, guys ever watch Columbo? Of course, yes. And of course you watch Columbo. Isn't that from like the 60s? It's from the 70s. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's yes, not go I, crazy. Yeah, but, we don't um, want to be too anachronistic here. But supposedly, and if you when you watch it with this in mind, it really does make sense. Columbo is modeled explicitly and self-consciously off of Socrates. Yeah. So he's an explicitly Socratic investigator. And it's not even like a, a metaphor, I don't think. I think it's that he's doing the same kinds of things Socrates does. It's just that where Socrates is interrogating what the good life is, Columbo is interrogating who committed some crime in LA or San Diego. But if I could just go back to Shannon's question again, I do think that not everything unknown, obviously, inspires wonder. Right. Not everything unknown is a mystery. Not everything unknown demands to be known in the way mm -hmm. that we're talking about right now. I don't know, for example, what shoes either of you are wearing because I can only see your heads, but I don't care. It's not a mystery. I'm not driven. I'm not even wondering, except for that <laughs> now, of course, I am wondering, but it's not a mystery. It's not something that needs to be known or demands to be known. So I do think that the genre model of there, there having to be a crime, there having to be a murder or a missing person or a purloined letter or something is interesting because it seems to indicate that there's something morally at stake in the fact that this information remains veiled. 
Right. And this is why, this is why I'm pushing this question, because I think that there are a lot of ways in which literature builds up suspense and tells a story and has a climax and a resolution, but there's something very specific to a mystery. And it does seem to be tied in some way to a very specific thing that causes us to wonder, which is the purloined letter, the kidnapped person, the stolen car, the murder. And so that seems to me, if we're going to be drawing this kind of comparison, we have to stick within the parameters of the genre to see how exactly, because you could also say, let me put it this way. You could also say that philosophy is the hero's journey. It's also about trying to achieve something great and going out on adventures in order to, to, to have that kind of personal growth and then returning to be able to tell about it. But that doesn't really capture the way we're talking about the mystery. So that's why I'm really pushing this yeah. issue of crime criminality that is at the heart of this. What is it the point that you made about the difficulty? And again, difficulty might depend upon our goals and projects too, right? So Lee doesn't necessarily care about our shoes, which it would be difficult for her to know about without asking us. But it becomes a difficulty because it seems to in some way get in the way of our projects in a way that we can't navigate our way around. And interestingly, I want to come back to this idea that we also presume there to be some sort of normative or moral weight to Mm-hmm. which I think is a, a key part of the, of the genre, even though actually, interestingly enough, arguably the very first detective novel, the, what usually gets called the very first detective novel, actually intentionally subverts that exact question. So it's funny that you can have the subversion of the genre before the genre even. What was that novel? So this is, so generally speaking, I think people d- tend to say that the murders at the Rue Morgue mm-hmm. is the first, I don't know if you guys, so this is an Edgar Allan Poe story. And so I'm going to butcher more French today. The, the, this aristocrat Dauphin is called in to, or his friend asks him to help investigate this grisly murder. Only it's not a murder. It's just that there was an orangutan, which I always find <laughs> hilarious, right? There was an orangutan loose in Paris and who, who killed this, this, this couple. And the way that the guy that, that Dauphin was able to de- determine was this was because it was clear that there was no moral or rational intent to the action. In other words, it was the irrationality and amorality of it that made him deduce that it had to have been an animal that did it, which I always find fascinating. I also want to say that is why whenever I ask philosophical questions or watch Dateline, my first question, is it an orangutan? (laughs) (laughs) And how often does that work out for you? It's like first eliminate the orangutans. And then ask the deep epistemological questions. There's even a lot of mystery stories in A Thousand and One Nights. Shahrazad is telling a ton of, of these little mini vignette stories of somebody was found a chest with a dismembered body in it. And, and we have to figure out who is it that, that did that. It's definitely, it's pervasive. And even though Poe was the first one to say it was an orangutan. <laughs> But and even there, and I think even as I say it subverts the genre, it does reinscribe this bigger point that you guys were making about the fact that it can be described as a crime and about right. the fact that reason has the capacity to master it. So one of the things that I find so very interesting about that first one is that it's this it's a story about the domination of reason over unreason. 
Mm-hmm. And presumably, I think a lot of times in a lot of even more traditionally structured mystery stories where there is a crime, that same element will come up over and over again. In fact, we'll talk about it as can the can the criminal is the criminal mastermind sufficiently smart to outsmart the detective. In other words, we think that at bottom, again, this is very explicit in the prestige. What we're dealing with is a battle of wits. Yeah, and I think that's why so many people find it so unsatisfactory when you have a mystery story that relies on the, this often happens in Sherlock stories and not necessarily Sherlock, but Sherlock-ish stories where the, the detective has some idiosyncratic knowledge that allows him to de- decipher some particular clue. And it doesn't actually feel like the triumph of reason over unreason. It feels like a trick and people find that really. That's accurate. why I don't like those. Oh yeah, I hate, I really don't like Sherlock Holmes stories. And it's funny because Lee, when you brought up the shoes, that was my first thought was, yeah, if this was a Sherlock Holmes novel, it would turn out that knowing the tread of my shoe tells you that, I I don't know, that I was in Harrisburg 15 years ago and there was a great pho restaurant there, which is true, but who the hell cares? (laughs) It's, it, it seems like a gimmick and we want our, we want some sort of deeper satisfaction than just a gimmick. Yeah. And not to go back to our previous episodes, lock hate fest, but (laughs) this is also true in philosophy is that some of the things that I find the most unsatisfactory and the most frustrating in philosophy is when I see philosophers just come up with some trick, right? That seems like this is not really like the invisible hand, right? This is not some triumph of reason. This is not bringing to light something that I want to know that I'm wondering about, but this is just a shtick. I think the invisible hand is a really great example of the kind of, that's a perfect example of a good mystery. What is it? How should something be run? It should be run by an invisible hand that is just left to its own devices for the economy to operate according to. That's a perfect, that's a perfect example for a murder mystery. I think that's a totally- Because it's going to kill you. It's a monkey's paw. It's an invisible monkey's paw. (laughs) But I think it's that totally would be a real un- twist. but I think it's totally unsatisfactory as an explanation, right? Because it it appeals to something unreasonable. It appeals to something magical or or miraculous. And that is But not doesn't it just mean deregulation? No, I know it as a metaphor what it means. Smith has a whole theory of of moral sentiment and of and mm-hmm. essentially a, a, a largely Christian sense of divine providence such that I, I think it's a much more neoliberal and neoclassical economic view that you can actually demonstrate in the workings of the market, the invisible hand. I think that, yes, Smith thought that this would be the upshot of it, but it really seemed to depend upon his view that reason would on its own get at an, an inherently good solution. And like that to me, I'm just too cynical for that. It just seems like a deus ex machina. Yeah. All right. Fair. Like I, I have, I have absolutely no desire to defend <laughs> Adam Smith. I just really like the idea of the invisible hand because it's fun to teach. Well, but, I like it being a monkey paw. <laughs> yeah, the invisible monkey paw. I'm totally <laughs> teaching it like that from now on. I'm gonna teach it like it's an orangutan. An orangutan paw. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so, Is it orangutan? I don't know. Probably. Okay, it, that's sorry. how it's spelled, but that's not how I learned how to say it. Yes. <laughs> Hey listeners, we really do love to hear from you. So feel free to send us an audio clip with a comment or a question to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. 
Also check out the interactive page on our website, hotelbarpodcast.com, where we often post questions or solicit comments about future topic episodes. You may hear yourself on a future episode. I want to, I guess I want a little bit more clarity because I won't lie. I'm surprised that what you both seem to be really liking about the genre is the sort of victory of reason over unreason and the dominance of reason over unreason, because we usually are harshing on that as something that has been a problem in the history of largely Western ideas and practices, which is reason will dominate nature, reason will make nature reveal its secrets, and then it will be able to control nature and also be able to control everybody else because it will be able to bring to light everything that is hidden and mysterious that we wonder about. And it's only a matter of time, right? This is always what I I reject in the contemporary arguments with the physicists and the philosophers, the physicists basically saying, look, we will get the secrets. We will get the answers. We will uncover all of the mysteries and philosophy being like, I'm not so sure about that. So I guess I want to push you both a little bit on your seeming love of this very move. Yeah, I said that I wanted to get to our, the subversions too, because I think, and that's why I've been insisting on the word wager. I was really, I, and I wonder if, I, I was sort of surprised that you didn't go all Hegelian on me when you bring up, is all philosophy a crime? Because in the Phenomenology of Spirit, literally one of the most important early steps of the movement of spirit is a crime. And I think it's correlated with, like, with him with the development of Platonic philosophy, if I'm recalling correctly. I don't know. I might be making that part up, but that's a longer story. <laughs> it's a key movement. I think one of the key things that happens in Hegel is that as a wager, it actually isn't a wager that always succeeds. And I think that one of the things that I love about the genre of the mystery is that actually it allows us to explore ways in which our expectations of how the stories are structured ends up failing. I think that that can end up, t- and I hope we can have time to talk about both of these. One way that to think about that is to think about the ethos of the detective or the ethos of the philosopher and the way to get it's implicated in this story. The other is whether or not that original expectation that we're going to know what the mystery is and we're going to be able to resolve it may or may not get thwarted. I think that also that Ammon's description of the triumph of reason over unreason is only one way to describe what that sort of deciphering is. I think that we could also come at this in a different way. This is a maybe predictably Derridian answer, but given the text here, there are going to be certain moves that I can make that are going to reveal certain things. And if I decoded and deciphered in different ways, different sorts of things would be revealed. It reminds me a lot. I don't know if any of you have seen this, but this HBO, I think, miniseries called The Night Of. It's a six-part miniseries. It's set up as if You're trying to figure out whether this kid killed this woman. But as the story goes on, that becomes less and less significant, that whether he actually did it becomes less and less significant. And there are all kinds of other mysteries to Mm -hmm. figure out. How is it that the criminal justice system is shaping these families and these characters in these particular ways? And that seems to me maybe to to show that the same story can be decoded in many different ways. And not all of them, I would think, would be aptly described as the victory of reason over unreason. I think, for example, in The Night Of, one of the things that I think if you successfully decode that story is about 
really developing a sensitive attention to the moral and political and social dimensions of the justice system beyond who did it, beyond the question who done it. I want to go one step further and then hear Ammon respond to this original question that I asked, which yeah. is in talking about our expectations being thwarted, I think of one of the best sort of detective mystery novels is Kafka's The Trial. And unlike The Night Of, where there's a lot of different ways of interpreting it, there's a lot of different sort of possible answers to what is the mystery and what is the solution to it, there's really very little in the way of that in the trial. In fact, you end up less understanding of what the crime is and less understanding of what the motives are and what the evidence is by the time that you're finished. And it's the, the whole story is an exercise in completely undoing reason and showing that there's just absurdity. Yeah, I think that the trial really gets at the way in which reason can devolve into rationalization. Joseph K is trying to show his innocence by first establishing what is the thing that they think I'm guilty of, but that means rationalizing what his actions are. And of course, he runs up into the fact that he can't, that it doesn't work that way. And what's being done to him, rationalizing what's being done to him. Well, there must be a reason all of these things are happening. But again, it shows that it's still a mystery And it's definitely you're you're trying to play the detective along with Joseph K to figure out what happened and what's going on. But you're completely thwarted by the end of the novel. And just going on that idea of the genre being reasons, victory over the unreasonable. And then the idea that you threw out there about certain texts and certain shows actually undoing that and thwarting that. So Locke makes this point that if we think about one of the constitutive moves of the mystery story being the revelation of the secret, you you guys are pointing to two different ways that can be much more contingent than we want to pretend that it is, or, or much less structured by the actual nature of reality. One being, as Lee is pointing out, you could reveal things in a lot of different ways and different ways of revealing things are actually going to end up making the mystery different things. And the other being, and it might be that there's there's a total blackout at some point, and there are some things that we just can't reveal. I'm really sympathetic to both views. With your point, one of the things that I was wondering as I was preparing for this episode is, does The Wire count as a mystery? Does it count as a police procedural, which is a specific kind of detective genre, or not? And it seems like if you think about McNulty, and I'm just going to assume everybody's seen all of The Wire 10 times as they should have. But if you think about the way that (laughs) McNulty and Bunk and Freeman, especially those three, interact with one another, that's a police procedural. But there's so much more going on in the story. I don't know if it's fair to still call it a police procedural anymore. I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree that all police procedurals are mysteries. I think that some of them definitely are, in particular those that are combined with also courtroom dramas. They tend to be mysteries. But I don't think that I would describe The Wire as a mystery. But think about how it starts. So at the opening, McNulty is insisting that there's some way that they can investigate and figure out who Avon Barksdale is. That that they know that there's this new... They might even know it's Avon Barksdale yet, but they, they, they know that there's a new player who's much more dangerous in West Baltimore's uh, drug scene. And he's trying to get permission to use a wire. To get, he's trying to get enough evidence so that he can get a wire so they can uncover who that is. And for the first few episodes, we don't find out who, who uh, Avon is either. Now, eventually, of course, we'll it'll the story will sort of sprawl out. We'll get his character. We'll get Stringer Bell. We'll get with so many. I can only I could just now name all the characters from The Wire and how much I love them. But I do think it starts off with a much more straightforward. Who is the guy who's controlling 
the West Baltimore drug scene. Yeah, but I'm not sure that distinguished. That seems to me to be an element of all storytelling Mm -hmm. is that it's going to start off with something presenting you with a world that you want to know more about. I'm not sure that is in every instance, a mystery, even when the kind of bookends of the story Mm -hmm. are the promise of the revealing of a secret. So I'm thinking of game of Thrones, for example, which had that kind of model, but I don't think anyone who watched all however many seasons of Game of Thrones would say that it was a mystery. It's a hero's journey. Yeah. And and I think that The Wire, The Wire is an interesting case because I do think that The Wire might be a lot more like how I just described The Night yeah. Of, which is that it might draw you in with this, what looks like a mystery structure. But, uh, but it, first of all, it's uncovering secrets all the time. So it doesn't seem to me like it sustains that structure if we're talking about the series as a whole. But also what The Wire does is constantly make you revise your estimation of what is important, what information is important, what relationships are important, your kind of interpretive frame. That doesn't seem to me to be primarily what a mystery does. Yeah, no, I agree. But I, I, but that's, but I think that's exactly what I find interesting about it, is that it is using the structure of this thing called the police procedural. And maybe we're just disagreeing about whether or not they're always mysteries, but it's using that thing to say the things that you are the most concerned about are not the right things. The right things to care about are the political structure of Baltimore, the structures of the generations of violence and counterviolence that seem unsolvable. But it's exactly especially I think McNulty and Bunk and Freeman's belief that there's a resolution that, that drives the plot forward. All right, nerds, I'm going to, I'm going to bring this back to philosophy and just, because I, I'm actually now intrigued by, by thinking of this as a model of philosophy. So in talking about the wire and in talking about the night of, and maybe even talking about the trial, you mm-hmm. could say that part of what is that is attention grabbing is that you think you're led to think that this is the one path that you should be following in order to discover the secret or solve the mystery. When in fact it opens you up into all of these other different sorts of paths. And so I, I'm actually liking this as a model for philosophy and philosophy's discussions with itself. Just like you think that you're going to find the answer by following in this direction. But in fact, what you're missing is all of these other forks in the road that can lead you down different paths. So would you say that would be a useful way to, to think about the engagement of philosophy and philosophers with each other? Yeah, I think so. And I think that this is a, a good time to start to maybe talk about the ethos of yeah. the philosopher and the yeah. ethos of the detective. Well, that's um, why that's, and that's again, why I was pushing you with this rationality sort of thing, because that's an ethos that I'm turned off on, turned off by yeah. that science will solve things that all can be revealed, that the secret can be discovered. And it just takes a shrewd mind and a sort of dedicated work ethic to be able to get these things. And I like the idea that we are philosophically and literarily drawn to try to discover the secrets and that there is a satisfaction when you get that. But I'm also worried about that as an ethic for philosophy. Yeah, if I could just jump, I'm really sympathetic to that, Shannon. And again, in an entirely predictable Duridian moment, let me just say that my my actual belief, my philosophical position is that there, there is no secret. So that even when we think we have uncovered the secret, 
we're probably mistaken about that. And so I'm much more inclined to think about what you're doing when you're solving a mystery as making sense of something that didn't seem to make sense. And that's not always scientifically discovering something or just putting back into place things that were out of place or uncovering some secret that you didn't know. It is also a construction of a world that makes sense in a certain way. And I do think that one of the things that is really interesting when we start to think about the model of a philosopher and its similarities or differences to the model of a detective is that there are different kinds of detectives and there are different kinds of philosophers and they're not all successful in equal way, in equal parts at different kinds of mysteries. I I don't think that the three of us are the kinds of philosophers whose primary approach to the field is to try to find all the hidden secrets and then put them back together in some order and then stand on top of the new story and claim the triumph of reason. I don't think that that's necessarily our modus operandi, but I do think that is the mo- the mode of a lot of philosophers. <laughs> like who? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we won't call any Lockeans out right now. <laughs> Hey everyone! We love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the HBS hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness, Ammon is at Ideasman PhD, and Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. <laughs> One of the things that I do think that we have to be careful about in philosophy is becoming so accustomed to the way that problems have been solved before us, that that's the only way we know how to do it. So we only know how to ask certain questions and we only know how to recognize certain kinds of answers. I actually fall into this exact problem when I watch Dateline episodes, which are Dateline is one of my you know favorite <laughs> true crime mystery shows. That's just because all the murders happen in Utah. (laughs) They do all happen in Utah. I don't know what is going on in Utah, but a lot of them happen in Utah. A lot of people getting abducted and murdered out there. But one of the things that if you watch Dateline or true crime shows like that, if you've gone 10 minutes into the episode or 15 minutes in the episode and you've only heard somebody's voice and you haven't seen them, they're probably in jail. And that's why you haven't seen them. So it's pro- they're, they're, they, they remain on your candidate list for perpetrators. And you also know it's probably the husband. It's probably the kinds of way that the story is revealed that might tempt you to go down certain kinds of avenues. I think people make those same mistakes in philosophy, that we get accustomed to the way that sense is made of things that we're wondering about. And we become incapable of taking other avenues. Yeah. And I think, I think that in the genre, I, I love like Agatha Christie, but I know that those are super cornball. And I think that or the, the whole cozy mystery genre that sometimes gets called involves sometimes these sort of very formulaic approaches. Lee, you and I, and one of the podcasts I did for Black Mirror Reflections was the police procedural hate in the nation. And one of the first things that blew the main detective in that says is it's always the husband. Yeah. And she's, yeah. and of course, in this case, it's not. This is one of the few cases it's not. But her point is, we want to believe that there's these deep, dark secrets. And, and most of the times there isn't. Like most of the times it's the husband. And most of but, the time it's in Utah. 
And most of the time it's in Utah. I'm starting to look over my shoulder. <laughs> She's like, for the bodies I stashed. <laughs> Shannon's like, yes, it's always the husband. It's always the husband. <laughs> Just remember that. I think that implicit in um, a lot of contemporary storytelling is that we do, in sort of our postmodern lens, want to subvert the traditional story. So true crime stories don't often have strong points of view. One of the interesting that's true about that's interesting about fictional stories is the way in which our point of view is structured by the kinds of things that, that the narrator or the investigator usually does. So that we are forced to have the ethos of the investigator. And in the case of Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot or Jane Marple, these end up being heroes. But I think starting with the hard-boiled detective genre, one of the things that I love about, about mystery stories is that very early on, they become very interested in investigating the ethos of the narrator. Yeah. So we actually got a clip from Jason Reed, who's a philosopher in South Maine, on the topic of when the investigator might be leading us down some darker paths. Hi, my name is Jason Reed, and I want to talk about the 1974 Francis Ford Coppola film, The Conversation, as perhaps my favorite mystery. Not technically a mystery, perhaps it's better understood as a conspiracy thriller, but it does have as, at its core, I think, one of the central kind of philosophical problems of mysteries, and that has to do with the question of evidence, the question of how we interpret what we see, and in this case, what we hear. The film concerns a surveillance expert, Harry Call, played by Gene Hackman, who is hired to record a conversation between a young couple in a public park. And in this conversation, the woman says to the man, he would kill us if he had the chance. Call becomes concerned that harm is going to come to this couple and tries to prevent it. But what he neglects to see is that phrase, he'd kill us if he had the chance, is ambiguous. It could be both an expression of a threat and a justification for a murder. And he also fails to see the role that his own recording and his own evidence plays in someone else's plot. He doesn't see that he is not, not outside of the scene he's recording, but is in some sense internal to it because his own recording plays a role in bringing about a murder that he's trying to prevent. I really like this from a philosophical perspective, exactly on this issue that we've been bringing up. So Call thinks that he is helping to uncover the truth. And he thinks he's doing that in a way which is neutral. But of course, he doesn't know who this couple is. He doesn't know that, that he's seeing part of an affair. It's been a minute, but I think that's correct. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. And so he doesn't know that about it. And so he doesn't realize that, therefore, part of what he's doing is providing a what isn't just a revelation about something that's taking place, but is also going to be an impetus for future action. In other words, he's implicating himself in the system. He's not uncovering, he's acting. He, and, and in the course of doing that, he's covering up other things. But back to our privacy issue, we assume that surveillance is somehow outside of the system. And I think what this story shows is that, no, actually, sometimes surveillance, actually, most of the time, surveillance is part of the system. 
so I really like this. It, it plays on the whole idea of the observer effect and that just that you were not simply unbiased observers of whatever mysteries we're trying to solve, but we're actually actively participating in it. And so I think that's a really good example of the reader or the philosopher and what their investment and engagement is in the process and how that's actually going to change what they discover and what turns out to be the truth. And I think that's also, I, it's even more sort of a fascinating issue right now in this sort of post-truth world. Amon, you brought my attention to Anita McChesney's article, which is all about this, the detective fiction in a post-truth world. And just this idea of what exactly are we investigating if we're living in a world that's sort of post-truth. And the reason why I thought that was so provocative regarding this exact issue that we're talking about now is I've just, I just finished the cue into the storm documentary oh, yeah, series. Really into this. Yeah. And it's really interesting because it wasn't like a resounding success. And I can't figure if that's just because Q supporters are in there downvoting it, or if it's just people are sort of like, it didn't really deliver, but Oh, it, it totally really, delivered. It totally delivered. And it also, I think it really self-consciously plays into this observer effect mm-hmm. yeah. because the filmmaker is so invested in the players and is so embedded in their lives and is clearly shift, steering the direction of the investigation. Mm-hmm. And they're clearly steering him in the direction of the investigation. And so you really see this observer effect happen. But it also is particularly about QAnon which is conspiracy theories and dealing in a post-truth world. And so what do you do when that's your mystery and you're the investigator, but we are already suspicious that there even is an answer or a crime or a solution? I think another way that thinking about that observer effect is really interesting today is that not only are we in a post-truth world, but we're also in this moment in the United States in which we're really having questions about whether or not to abolish the police, right? To defund Mm -hmm. the police. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, especially over the last year, as, sorry, this podcast is going to sound like all I do is watch Dateline. And that's not true. Like 70% of what I do is watch Dateline. But (laughs) it's true. but, but, But one of the things I've noticed over the last year is that when I watch some of the Dateline stories now, and you get to the end and you think, what you figured out is who was the murderer or who was the abductor and like, who was the criminal? Oh, I, now I know who the criminal was when in fact, what you should be saying at the end is now I know who has a psychological disease. Now I know who has an addiction. So the question is not like who, sh- who needs to go to jail? Who's the criminal, but something else just to get back to Shannon's point, even framing it as a crime limits the kinds of answers that you can come up with when you do sort of solve it. Mm. Is Dateline aware of that? Or are well, they? No, I've been trying to get Keith Morrison on the phone for a long time, but he, <laughs> because he hasn't, he hasn't <laughs> taken my calls. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Dateline, so this might be unfair of me, but it seems to me like that might be Lee Johnson's investigation of the ethos of Dateline. I'm, I'm not yet willing to admit that Dateline is... Consciously aware of its own ethos. Wait a minute. What? I don't think that I'm not saying that Dayline is asking these questions. Right. That's what I was asking. Yeah. No, Dayline is still who's the criminal and who should go to jail. But what I'm saying is that in our cultural moment, when we are as a culture asking these questions about the role of the police and the role of incarceration in the justice system in dealing with 
social problem, you know, deep social problems that actually cause real harm to a lot of people, that convicting someone of the crime is not really what we need to be figuring out. What we need yeah. to be figuring out is how did we how did we not see that this person had addiction or this person had psychological problems or this person was homeless or impoverished or many of the other reasons why people end up committing crimes. So I don't imagine that either one of you has seen the Netflix. This is a robbery. Uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Yes. You've seen it. So that's, I was thinking about this because first of all, I didn't even know about this robbery in 1990 of these 13 irreplaceable, amazing paintings. And I think there's also a Chinese vase and then finial from Napoleon or whatever. So I didn't know anything about this. But what's so interesting is that the ethos of the series, because they don't, we still don't know. You don't get the aha moment. There's not the like, and here's who done it. And now we're going to put him in jail. What it ends up doing, for me at least, was show you how marvelous and beautiful these paintings are, these works of art are, because they keep going back to them and giving you these beautiful, like detailed images. And so it really makes it an aesthetic kind of an ethos rather than a, we got to find these people and we got to throw them in jail. In fact, it ends with, now we're offering $10 million and we're not even threatening to throw anyone in jail. Just please give us these works of art back. (laughs) I don't want to harp on the, Dateline doesn't get it and the the documentary doesn't get it. But this is to me one of the reasons why I think I prefer mystery stories a lot of times to true crime is because there is, I don't think that a lot of documentaries, they're not transparent about their own involvement. They don't understand that there is an ethos to the lens. I think great. You you think that literary mysteries? Yeah, like what what author? I think so, dude. Yeah, who I think think, think that... Well, that's actually a 13th century century Iranian poet who was very self-consciously aware of this. But in all seriousness, Hammond, like if if I was reading a mystery novel and the the novelist, the narrator, the novelist or the narrator were were transparent in the about their own sort of observer influence in the way that you're describing, that would not be a good mystery. No, I'm not saying that that they're transparent about what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that because there is a character, because there is a narrator, because there's a novelist, there's a a detective, there's ways in which a good storyteller can make you have to reflect self-consciously on the lens of the story in a way that you guys as sophisticated viewers are taking to true crime stories but that often isn't really there, especially now because Netflix is just producing so many of these. And I get, I don't want to just talk about true crime the rest of the time, which is what you guys are going to make me do. <laughs> I, I just want to say, really- I just want to say that you sound like me harshing on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette with you all. And you're like, no, it's really storytelling and it really is this thing. That's what you sound like harshing on our true crime love. That's fair. But, but let me you do. Really- you're also, you're also, the complaint that you're making is about the viewer. And you could say the same thing about some people who read mystery novels. They're not, to use your exact words, sophisticated enough readers. <laughs> they're not sophisticated enough readers to reflect on the role of the storyteller. But true crime documentaries also have a storyteller. And, they- and yeah, I think that there are a lot of people who do. I think 
this is how we got the whole serial podcast, right? Is that you had a lot of people who've been watching these true crime documentaries for a long time. And we're like, there are other interesting ways that we could be doing this, other kinds of questions, ways that we could be telling this story. I think you're being totally unfair to, to the television genre there. That might be true, but I, I that's with respect to serial, I'll grant that. I do think I'm mostly I'm just harshing on Dateline here. <laughs> But I I, you're I just think, not I mean, a sophisticated enough viewer to watch it. <laughs> but I think I do think that you're, you're missing my my point about the narrator, right? It's not about the sophistication of the viewer. It's about the fact that you're able to deploy narrative techniques to make something thematic, to make something part of the story, which serial does do, but which most true crime stories just don't do. There's not the camera is set up somewhere. And it's rolling, as it were. Or Dateline is, is structuring the story in a certain way. The, the producers are off screen in certain ways. And mm. the point that I'm trying to get at, maybe I'm wrong about true crime stories, fine. But the point that I'm trying to get at is that I think a crucial element of a lot of mysteries that are fictional is the implication of the investigator. And there are ways to investigate that literarily that open up new avenues. <laughs> So can we talk some about what some of our favorite mystery stories are, detective stories are, and why for a little bit? Because again, I think that this gets at, if we're saying that the interesting thing about the genre is the ways in which you can implicate and think about whether or not how truth is uncovered, but even more, whether or not it's really possible to uncover the truth. I'm just curious, like what you guys think, what kinds of stories do that really successful and which ones don't? I'm particularly a fan of gothic literature where you're trying to figure out who is the mad character in the attic and what devastation is being wrought upon the family as a result of this madness. But honestly, I've recently got into Murakami's work and I absolutely love A Wild Sheep Chase. And I love that the whole time you're looking for something, but it's really actually a sheep that's <laughs> mad with power and has a diabolical plan. So it's completely unexpected and it's got that hard boiled edge to it. So we're back to animals. Yeah, yeah I'm going to have to, now I'm going to have to add that to my <laughs> orangutan list. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Diabolical Was sheep and orangutan. First, ru first rule out monkeys and sheep. What about you, Lee? I'm not going to add any new titles. I do think that in terms of television series, that Dateline is still one of my favorites. I think I like the formulaic formula. I like, I like the formulaic formula, too. <laughs> I like that it's formulaic, like that it is a kind of training in figuring out how cops figure out crimes. Yeah, I do really like the Dateline. But I will say that, again, The Prestige is a great mystery, not only because it is a mystery, but because it also is about mysteries. It's about the both what draws us to wanting to figure out things that appear to us to be magical or mysterious or miraculous, but also how those things can drive us mad, how those things can, how we can become obsessed with thinking that there is a secret to be uncovered uh, and how we can, you know, d put our whole lives into sort of figuring these things out and, and it can harm us. 
Like philosophy. It's funny, right? One thing that Bloch points out, and that's been a common trope here, is he makes this case that you can almost argue that Oedipus is the first mystery. Yeah. And of course, it's always back to origins. And he even points out that we're doing at least two things in a lot of police stories. We're telling stories about origins, and we're also assembling evidence. And that in this case, Oedipus is setting up to both, both these things. And both the detective novels and murder mysteries take this as their sort of starting point. But interestingly, Oedipus, anyone who would have seen that already knows the story. So the mystery is only for Oedipus on stage, but everybody else already knows who did it. Yeah, And already true. knows what happened. But that's just so interesting. I think that in, in the more contemporary age, we like not knowing. We don't want to know what happens and we're excited about figuring out the mystery. I think that we also like figuring out things that we already know. And I, this is something that we haven't really talked about in this episode, but I want to throw in here before we finish. But I do think that only in reflecting on having this conversation with you guys, that it occurred to me that I do think I teach a lot of my classes like it's a mystery. Yeah. Mm. You know, I think that I start whenever I start a new philosopher, I set it up as this problem. And I usually say, and the answer is going to be this, which you don't know what this is yet. And you don't know mm. how it works. And what we're going to do over the next several days is we're going to figure it out. And the way that it actually works out ends up being like hurting a lot of little detectives. Some of them are going the wrong way. You're like, no, 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 don't follow those clues. That's not a good clue. <laughs> or did you actually look at that? Let's go look at that again. That might be telling you something that is going to be really important. And I do think that it is about trying to keep the focus on, as Shannon said at the very beginning, this idea that philosophy begins in wonder and it may or may not end in the triumph of reason over unreason. I don't think it always does, but that the process of trying to figure something out is what this discipline is about and to make sense of the world is what this discipline is about. And so I do think that again, on reflection, it occurs to me that my classes are basically like mysteries. <laughs> I, Absolutely love that. And everything that you just said to describe the classroom experience, I think that's so good. And maybe we can talk more about it in the next episode on teaching. But just to add to that, that frustration when a student, you're like, here, I'm leading you on the breadcrumb trail to get you to the to uncover the great mystery of whatever thinker that we're working with now. And then somebody will go to the end and be like, yeah, but there's this great quote at the end that just says, and you're like, no, we can't go to the end. <laughs> you have yeah, to work. Jump. You have to, exactly. You have to follow the steps so that the mystery, it's a better prestige moment. You but don't want to just immediately see the prestige. You got to go through the effort of the whole performance. I think it's funny because I think that I, I, I keep on going back for actually have three short answers, three answers to this question, which is too and a many, comment. you know. What's that? Three, <laughs> answers, three answers and a comment. Yeah. But I think one of the things that I was thinking about as I was trying to figure out what, what I would say here is like all three, all three of the ones that I, that I remember my candidates all involve exactly the fact that you actually think that a lot sooner than you think you do, but it doesn't make sense what it is and making sense of it again, back, I, I hate to harp on the same points, but it goes, it, it has to do with an ethos. And Lee, I think what you're describing in the classroom is a certain kind of ethos, right? Yeah. yeah. Because we all know philosophers who do the same thing that you're doing, but are assholes about it. Right. And I think that what I was trying to get at with a lot of the narrators, is I think a lot of the narrators, the traditional narrators and detective stories are assholes. And I really love, so Shannon, I know Lee and I like Knives Out, which you don't. <laughs> See, that to but, me, Knives Out feels just me like Agatha Christie. 
I do. But it just feels formulaic. But the interesting thing about it is that I think that the main character, the main detective there, Benoit, whatever his name is, he doesn't seem like a very good detective. And what makes him a good detective is that he trusts Marta. So he, he's not actually revealing the truth. He's letting her or he's not interfering with her, his sense of her innate goodness and her not wanting to play the same game that the rest of them are playing be a way of shepherding the truth out. And I think that that's, that's a teacher focused way of being a detective when most detectives aren't. That's I still don't like the movie, but I, yeah. I really like how that ties in with Lee's description of the teaching ethos. But my other two just really fast. I'm still no, we want to hear watch them. this Danish detective show, <laughs> The Investigation, <laughs> which again, so as a conception, even though it's a narrative. It's, oh, listeners, it's if you could only see Lee in my faces right now. <laughs> Go it's on, tell crime. us about this six hour <laughs> Danish detective show. It's a, it's, so it's a, it is a true crime story, but it's done as a. Then it, literally, the sarcasm was completely lost on David. He's, oh, okay. I'm so glad you asked. Ignore the sarcasm. <laughs> Please do, as you should. Go on. I literally can't wait to hear. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys remember when the, tor- the torture submarine? This was real. So this is real. It's true. Do you crime. All remember so the torture submarine? I think we called that graduate school. <laughs> no, there was this guy <laughs> who had this weird submarine in Denmark like three years ago that he apparently yeah. abducted and killed a journalist on. So that part's that it's but it's done in this sort of fictional way. But the thing that I find fascinating there is it's obvious that this guy did it from the beginning and they arrest him right away. But this gets to the post truth point that you guys were talking about. The, the murderer just continually denies they find a new piece of evidence and he'll just say, okay, well, I've got a new story that incorporates this new piece of evidence. And the question becomes at what point can you say that you actually have enough evidence? Mm. And it, because again, that gets to the question of how do we construct reality? Yeah. Right. And again, the investigator has to be a, a sensitive person. He has to be willing to sit for six hours in Danish, it's not so hard for him because he's Danish, with the fact that even though we know the answer, we don't know how we get the answer. The last one is Twin Peaks because we know it's Bob right away through dreams. And I mm. love that that Dale Cooper is, of all the people we've talked about, he's the only one who's willing to accept maybe the mystery really is a mystery. Mm. I can, like I, can I ask you guys a question? This is uh, riffing on the way that Ammon just described those his three favorites there, but also a question going back to how it is that you teach philosophy. If we presume that we're the we're the narrators and not the yeah. detectives in our class, like how do you position yourself as narrators? I, so maybe this will help. I'll go first. <laughs> My, I would say that I position myself as a narrator who is on the side of the criminal. And so yeah. that whatever philosopher we're teaching, I'm on their side. I think their secrets are right. I think the clues yeah. are after the right clues to follow. I think there's only one way from the beginning to the end and it's their way. That's how I teach it. Now I'm curious how you- I don't, I don't want to give away too much of my hand for our next discussion. Okay, okay. That's fair. fair enough. <laughs> leave it a mystery for now. Yeah, we'll leave it, we'll leave it a mystery. I want to be the kind of narrator who just lets the reader follow the clues. I do not think I am that kind of narrator. I think what I am is very much a, okay, let's follow the mystery, but I'm going to not be able to stop myself from interjecting that this is the wrong mystery to follow. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. I'm much, I, I think I'm more like Lee. 
Which is always really perplexing to my students. If you teach a class like feminism and you're like, there's so many different ways to interpret these problems and I'm going to agree with every one of them as I teach it. Yeah, same. Yeah, I teach a basically a sort of intro level ethics class and it's very confusing to my students for the first several weeks because you do a week on Kant and then you do a week on John Stuart Mill and they're like, but last week you said, no, okay, I, I, want, I don't want to do too much on the teaching because this, okay. this is all the conversation uh, I want to have next good, time. Because I think we just got last called. So I think we did okay. just get last called at the bar, <laughs> which is really good actually, because I cannot wait to queue up six hours of Danish mystery. Oh man, me too. Yeah. I, got, it's two I o'clock now even... by eight in the morning. You'll be good to go for your next session. Of- <laughs> but since, since Shannon, right. since Shannon won't let us talk about teaching now, That's you right. want to tell us what we're going to be talking about next time? <laughs> you might be surprised to hear that we're going to be talking about teaching in our next episode. And we're just going to talk about what happens in the classroom, what various philosophers have to say about teaching and education, maybe tell some good stories of success and failure that we may have had as teachers in the classroom and that, that sort of thing. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. I will catch y'all next time. See you on the flip side.